0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, if you've got your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel chapter 17, that's where we are, and to orient you, we are in the study of the life of David. We're coming near the end of David's life. He's um, likely in his 60s at this point. He uh, was anointed uh, by Samuel um, under God's direction when he was about 16 years old to be the next king of Israel. From there he goes, he fights Goliath, he wins the day, he finds favor for a little while in uh, the king's court, which is Saul at the time. Uh, David will fall out of sorts with Saul. Um, Saul will become jealous of him. David will lead, uh, famously lead, uh, military troops against the enemies, namely the Philistines. Um, David will find himself on the run from Saul, who is seeking to kill him, to destroy his life. Saul wants um, David dead. Well, David will hide out. He will be on the run, and that will be a good ten years of his life. Saul will finally meet his end at the end of 1 Samuel. And then David will be coronated publicly as the next king. He has been anointed privately by God's prophet. He will be, he's coronated publicly by God's people. He assumes the kingship. He serves seven years as king in a a place called Hebron and then moves the capital to Jerusalem where he will serve as king for 33 years there, 40 years in total. And we are here at the end, near the end of David's reign. The last part of David's life has really been um, turmoil, and it has been primarily a family conflict that has grown into a full-blown civil war of the kingdom. His son, Absalom, is leading a coup against his father. But since David is the anointed king by God, Absalom's coup is actually against the kingdom of God as much as as it is against his father. And so that's where we are this morning. We're in chapter 17. We'll look at 17 and 18 and we'll briefly look at the beginning of chapter 19 and come back to 19 next week. But um, to help you outline it, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about in chapter 17 what I would call a divine conspiracy In chapter 18, we're going to talk about a decisive victory that will lead surprisingly into a royal grief, and all of that being the on-ramp for baptism this morning. Yes, I know, Um, but, but follow with me. I'm going to begin in chapter 17, 2 Samuel 17. Read a few verses, and then we'll, we'll tell the story and drop into the text here and there. It begins by this, saying this, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom... Now, real quickly, Ahithophel is the um, counselor to Absalom. Ahithophel was the counselor to David beforehand. He is a military, political, strategic leader and counsel. He is a man who is very savvy, wise in the ways of the world. He knows how things work. And and it really, as you read the story, you you wonder sometimes if Ahithophel isn't the earthly influence behind the coup of Absalom. If if he hasn't set the table and, and played the cards just right because Ahithophel is a strategic genius. And so now he's in Absalom's ear and he says to him, "'Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic. And all the people with him, uh, who are with him will flee, and I will strike down only the king. And I'll bring all the people back with you as a bride comes home to her husband.'" You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. That's how verse 4 ends. So, um, Ahithophel is um, this counselor, and he says, Look, I'm your great military strategic leader. Let me efficiently tell you how this goes. David's on the run. He's discouraged. He's he's, um, uh, weary. He's uh, weary. So, I'm going to take 12,000 men. We're going to raid the camp while they're asleep. I'm going to go straight to the middle of the camp, kill David. All your problems will be solved. That's all we've got to do. He sees it clearly. It is the last um, domino to fall in the great coup that David needs to be dead. Now, interestingly enough, everything you need to know about Hith- uh, Hithophel, uh, you, you find out in the phrase where he says, I will strike down only the king. It's a lack of respect for God's anointed. He he lacks fear of God himself by saying that. It's high treason, but, but more than that, it's divine treason and treason. That's contrasted with how David had treated Saul, who, who David didn't want to harm Saul because David knew, listen, Saul is God's anointed. Right or wrong, if the man is right or he's wrong or he's, or he's good or he's bad, we, we don't touch God's anointed, is the way David viewed it. But Ahithophel had no problem, which in many ways I think shows with all his earthly wisdom, he really did not believe, or at least understand the power of God. Well, here's what happens, and it's, it's actually um, quite fascinating. In verse 5, Absalom, after they've already declared, listen, that, that seems like a right plan, and the elders say, well, that, that seems like a right plan, Absalom will say to this other man who's in his inner court named Hushai, Hushai is a guy who is a David loyalist. He wanted to go with David when David fled, and and David said to Hushai, no, 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 I need you to go back to Absalom. I need you to win his favor. Get into his inner court because I need eyes and ears in there, Hushai. So he does, and he's there. And Ahithophel has just laid out a perfect and brilliant strategy to end this thing once and for all, and yet Absalom will turn to Hushai and say, yeah, well, you know, Hushai, um, I was kind of wondering what you think. Come on in here into the council. Let me tell you all about what Ahithophel's plan is. And um, then he'll say to him, what do you think of Ahithophel's plan? In verse 7, Hushai said to Absalom, Well, this time, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good which is a bold thing. Ahithophel is known. I mean, he's, he's the old guy in the room. I mean, he knows how this thing works. So, well, this, this time, this, this one time. And then in verse 8, he goes on, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they're enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father's an expert in war he'll not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. You know, one of those places he writes all the Psalms, Absalom. And as soon as some of the people fall, and it's the first attack, and whoever hears it will say, well, there's been a slaughter among the people who, who follow Absalom. And then there are even the valiant men whose hearts are like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father's a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. Listen, you can't take him head on. Absalom. His reputation's greater than yours. Listen, he's got guys, and you don't want to slip up or make one, one mistake there. So, verse 11, he's going to offer a counter plan. Look at what it says. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, as the sand by the sea for multitude that you go to battle in person. Well, Absalom's fatal mistake is that he's not taking Ahithophel's counsel, from a human standpoint, that is. Ahithophel knew the right way, and, but there's more to play at play here than human wisdom. Listen, it's a good reminder. There's always more at play than human wisdom. Absalom not only invites too many cooks into the kitchen, all right, he gives Hushai Ahithophel's recipe. He says, "So what do you think of it? Well, I don't think he's so good this time. Well, Absalom's the one that's going to get cooked, if I can say it that way. It's interesting. Um, Hushai's counsel was three and a half times longer than Ahithophel's. Hithophel says, this is what we need to go do. Hushai is going to take three and a half times more words, and you know what he's going to do? He's not going to speak to military strategy. He's going to to speak to an ego strategy. So he starts with, listen, Hithophel's wrong this time. Then he paints a picture of bear and cubs and lays a couple of thou fathers on him. And then Absalom says, but look, or Hushai says, now Absalom, don't lose sight of what's important here. And what's most important is your reputation, your esteem, how you, how people see you. That's what's most important. And Absalom was in perfect agreement. And the strategy in verse eleven there is to play on Absalom's ego. You can only imagine how it sounded to the ears of Absalom to think about the sea of Israelites following him. Its brilliance. And cunning on the part of Hushai, because he knows He knows the language Absalom speaks, but you know what? More than that he knows his Bible. He knows that God, what God does with proud men that go after his people with a number that is like a sand on a seashore, and that God always wins. In Joshua chapter 11, it talks about the Israelites, they've come into the land, they're taking the land under Joshua's command, and the kings of the north and Canaan have united against Israel. And in Joshua 11, it says this, and they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in numbers like the sand that is on the seashore. There were people everywhere. You know what God says to Joshua? Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give them all over to you, slaughtered to Israel. Well, the next time that phrase shows up, this sands of the seashore, is Gideon in chapter 7 of Judges. So you know Gideon, he's one of the judges, and there's the... Um, the enemy that's come and they've been ransacking all the crops and, and they've been threatening all of the people. And so Gideon shows up. He's got 22,000 people. And God says, man, that's great, but that's too many people. So he whittles it down to 10,000 people. And he says, you know what, that's really too many people. So here's what I want you to do. Have them all go. Drink out of the spring of Harad. And whoever drinks with his hands cupped is one side. And whoever drinks laps it up like a dog is another side. And then all the you know, Sunday school's debate on which side's which. Depends on how you read it. But either way, whichever side, God takes Gideon's army from 22,000 to 10,000 to 300 people, and, and Gideon is no Gerard Butler, okay? I mean, it says, okay, now with those 300 people, I want you to go into battle against, and here's what the text describes the enemy, as locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore. Well, Gideon wins. God wins that day as well. And then in earlier in 1 Samuel 13, there's a battle against the Philistines. They show up. 30,000 chariots and horsemen. and But the Lord saved Israel. You know, there's another contrast. So Hushai... Ahithophel, he was going to lead this deal, right? Absalom, you stay here. I'm going to take some men. We'll go in. I'll get David. We'll drag him back. It'll all be done. Hushai's plan? No, Absalom, you go. You be the center of the action. You be the center of attention. You be the center of glory. It's a ground zero ego strategy, and that speaks Absalom's language, and it syncs with his worldview, and nothing can make you more vulnerable as your own pride, as your own ego. You want to be sure to fall? Leave your pride unchecked. It makes you vulnerable to anger. It makes you vulnerable to depression. It makes you vulnerable to self-loathing. It, it, it makes you vulnerable to ruining your relationships. It makes you vulnerable to vengeance. Vengeance described as payback inflicted or retribution exacted for an injury or a wrong. Absalom is angry at his father and he wants his dad to know just how angry he is. Man, Absalom, if he just had, you know, six sessions on, on Brent's couch over there in the Tapestry Counseling Center. An eye for an eye. No, no, no. An eye for a tooth. He hurt me. I'm going to hurt him back worse. I've suffered. He's going to suffer more. And so Hushai taps into Absalom's need for vengeance. He said, we'll, 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 uh, we'll take him, we'll rope him, we'll drag him into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. Well, in verse 14, look at this. This is a kind of a key verse. This is, um, this is why I call it a divine conspiracy. Look at this and Absalom and all the men of Israel said you know upon further reflection the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel that's the quote now look at the commentary of the writer for the lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the lord might bring harm to Absalom. It was God's divine conspiracy happening. His sovereignty, His Providence, And from David's point of view, listen, David's out there. He knows they're coming. He doesn't know how. He's waiting to hear from Hushai if he can get him any details, any plans, anything that might help him know what Absalom is about to do. But from David's point of view, you have to know all this felt very out of control, very uncertain, very unsure. But notice all the things that God is doing in this grand orchestra of sovereignty. Absalom, in his free will is walking right into God's plan for him. Ahithophel, in his human wisdom, perfectly executed, is being frustrated and thwarted by God. And Hushai, in the midst of danger, is navigating the purposes of God. And all this is going on behind the scenes. David is unaware. One writer says it this way, More often than not, this is the manner of God's work. His scepter is unseen, His sovereignty hidden behind the conversations and decisions and activities and crises of our lives. We see only grocery lines and diaper changes and school assignments, but through and over and behind it all, God rules. He is not absent, but neither is He obvious. Sometimes we must be told that lest we become too... Enamored with the hush eyes. See, what God's ordained, it is going to come to pass through the free will choices of all these men who have such a disregard and disrespect and disdain for God's anointed. Does it it remind you of anything? Peter, in Acts chapter 2, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up to preach his very first sermon where 5,000 people are converted all at once. And he says this, is Jesus. And it's like he wants him to be clear. Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. If you want to know how Jesus ended up on that cross, that decision was made before the foundations of time. It was God's definite plan. And You crucified and killed him by handing him over to lawless men. So you say, wait a minute, Peter, who's responsible for that? he would say, yes, that's right. It was ordained, and by men's free will, they walked right into God's plan, exactly how he planned it. Well, here's what happens in verses 15 through 23. Let me sum it up. It's like this high-speed car chase, and you're on the edge of your seat because Hushai needs to get this information now to David because David's in hiding, but he needs to know because Absalom's on the way. Hushai is probably dismissed somewhere in the middle of 14. He doesn't know that they're going to go with his plan. He thinks, listen, they're, they're probably going with Ahithophel's plan. I mean, I tried my best, spent three and a half times longer trying to stroke his ego, but, you know, at the end of the day, Ahithophel's plan's better. So what he does is he goes to two priests. Those two, he says, okay... This is my this is Ahithophel's plan, such and such. This is my plan, so and so. You got to get this to David. Those two priests, they run. They tell a servant girl. The servant girl, she runs out to tell two men that are hiding from David's camp. But they're not really hiding because they got caught. And then they're being they're on the run. They tell Absalom. Those men are being chased by Absalom's men. They go to this place called Baharim. They jump into a well. The lady there, she likes David, so she comes out. She camouflages the top of the well. They said, "Where would he go?" "Said, well." I'd, Don't know, I think they went that way. The men make it back to David, and all this happens in a night, and by the morning time, the camp is empty, and David has fled. It's like an episode of of 24, you know? I mean, it just, just keeps going. And then notice verse 23, just real quick. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Ahithophel hangs himself. It's just this matter-of-fact telling of his end, of his death. He put his affairs in order, and then he took his life. He probably knew at that moment, look, if they go with Hushai's plan, this thing's over. David's going to win. Absalom's going to lose. David's going to come back. I'm going to be executed as a traitor on, on paper. My plan was the right plan. But for whatever reason, Ahithophel did not understand the weight of God's glory. He despised God's anointed, he laid siege on God's kingdom, and he intended to lay hands on God's king. From a human standpoint, everything should have worked. He had the people, he had the plan, he'd take the time to lay the foundation, but God will not be mocked. He will not be thwarted. and He makes the wisest of man's wisdom foolishness with a word. Well, David will go and he'll camp at a place called Mahanaim, Maha okay? That place literally means, this happens in, in verse 24, and then you, you get the location again in verse 27. The name of that camp, the name of that place, literally means two camps. And the man who named it that is a man named Jacob. David's great, 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 grandfather. And in Genesis 32, Jacob is um, on the run from Laban. He's coming back into Israel. He knows he's going to have to meet Esau, who's bigger and hairier and could beat him up. And And he'd done Esau wrong the last time he saw him, so he knows Esau wants to kill him. He camps there. He's absolutely terrified. All of a sudden, Genesis 32, Jacob went on his way even, and the angels of God met him And when Jacob saw them, he said, well, this is God's camp. So he called the place Mahanim. Uh, He calls it two camps because here he is in this great need. Listen, Jacob was wrong. He'd made one wrong decision after another, but God had a promise to Jacob that he would be the one who the blessing came through. So God doesn't leave him. He doesn't forsake him. He shows up at this camp. Here's Jacob. And the angels come and they they comfort him, provide him. And he says, you know what? It's God's camp. It's two camps. It's my camp and it's God's camp. Heaven and earth are both camped here. Listen, as believers, that's where we live. Two camps. We're in the world. We're not of the world. We're heavenly citizens, Paul will say. We're, we live in two camps. And then so when you wake up in the morning, which camp are you living out of? Which reality are you living out of? One writer says this, Samuel, 2 Samuel 17, shows God's kingdom under attack but also under His protection. There's a solace, there's a peace in that for the people of God. Our ultimate security does not rest on any immunity, from personal disasters or any guarantee that our own nation or our own camp will never fall, but only in the fact that the God of heaven has set up his kingdom and it shall stand forever. We live in two camps. Which one are you living out of? Well, in chapter 18, so we've got the that was the divine conspiracy. You're going to have a decisive victory here, okay? And um, essentially, uh, the first half of chapter 18 is the battle. And the battle's going to take place. The The whole, the first five verses are, are um, the people getting ready to go out to battle. This is a civil war, by the way. Israelites against Israelites. So the first five verses tell us the sad state of affairs of everybody getting ready. But in verse 5, just notice verse 5. It says, And the king, this is David, ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai," uh, Ittai. These are the kind of commanders. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom that this final word of preparation, this man Absalom has led a coup. He's deceived your brothers and sisters and your kinsmen. He's won the hearts of Israel. He is an open rebellion against the anointed king. Listen, he's an open rebellion against God. And we fight for the future of this kingdom today. So we go out there in the name of God. But then David will say, But just don't kill Absalom. And there's this strange thing about this because Absalom is the root of the evil. You cut Absalom off, the whole thing's over. You don't have to kill anybody else. You kill Absalom, and it's over. And yet David's willing to send his men to risk their life, but he's not willing to deal with the evil at its root. And so in verses 6 through 8, here's what happens. that The victory is, um, that the battle is three verses. It's very succinct. The writer's not interested in any of the details about the verses, except that David's men won. The rebellion against God's anointed is decisively defeated. And the, then the writer, what he does is he turns the zoom lens in on Absalom, and look at verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, which is a declaration of that he's, you know, a sovereign royalty. So he's riding on the mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Now that... That is a bad day. There he is hanging by his proud head. and There's nothing he can do. So the story tells it that the men come upon him and they're like, well, what should we do with him? And they're like, hey, remember, we can't kill him. David said, don't kill him. Then Joab shows up. He said, what are y'all talking about? He said, well, there's... There's Absalom. It's kind of like a piñata. But we can't kill him. And Joab says, what do you mean you can't kill him? Send a bunch of boys to do a man's job. Takes three spears, drives them into him, drags him down, gives him to ten of his servants. They beat him to death. Then in verse 17, they took Absalom, threw him in a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Meaning, all Israel fled. All, all, the, all the people that were coming up against David, they, they, they left. The, 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 the battle's over. Now, don't miss this. I don't, let's not make too much of it, but let's not miss it either. Here you have a son of David hanging in a tree and buried under some stones. Does it remind you of anything? Yet the death of this son of David doesn't save anybody, really. It's a tragic death. It's a man, it's a son of David who will die in his own guilt. He will get justly what he deserves. It is a picture of a man who's cursed. That's what it means to be buried under those rocks. It's a, it's a curse. And it's contrasted with verse 18 where it says, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself uh, uh, the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name uh, in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And it's called Absalom's monument to this day. So it's one thing if, you know, you give a lot of money you're really generous you do something heroic and somebody says hey we want to make a statue of you put you out in front and say well gosh don't i mean don't do that but i mean w- w- when will it be ready i mean that's one thing right it's another thing to just make your own monument if i come to you you invite me to dinner i come to your house i show up at your house there's a statue of you on the front yard i'm not staying A man who tried to seek his own glory, his death, he will end. He he dies cursed. Well, David is going to mourn, okay? And I mean he... If your enemy had been killed, the civil war had ended... It's now time to rebuild the kingdom. And David, you're restored as king. Come on back into Jerusalem. We Take your rightful place as God's anointed king. Should be a day of great celebration. Should be a day of feasts and sacrifices. And praise songs to the Lord. But it is not that. They're out on the battlefield, and they decide, well, somebody ought to go tell David that this thing's over and how it ended. And, and one of the priest's sons says, well, I'll go do it. And Joab says to him, no, you, no, you don't want to do that. He says, but hey, we won. He says, yeah, but um, you're not going to get a reward for this news. Because in the winning, we killed Absalom. His son is dead. So I look around and say, well... Bring that Cushite over here. We'll send him. So they send the Cushite. The priest's son, he couldn't help, but he starts to run anyway. He ends up being faster than the Cushite. He shows up, starts to tell David the story, and he gets to the point where Absalom's dead and he can't tell him. Because that's all David wants to know about. Cushite shows up, catches his breath, and says, Oh, yeah, by the way, your son is dead. And in verse 33 of chapter 18, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. To be up in the chamber over the gate to the city, everyone would have seen him, everyone would have heard him. They're coming back from a celebration, from a victory, from, from the Lord delivering them. And what Joab will tell David by doing that, David, you have made this victory and celebration a shame. You have made your men ashamed to come back home. David cries out at the end of 33 Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Well, they tell Joab, hey, look, the king's up there, he's weeping. Something's got to be done. So in verse 5, Joab came into the house of the king said, you've, not, you've, you've covered with shame the faces of your servants who this day saved your life, and the lives of your sons and daughters and wives and concubines. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you, you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you'd be, you'd be pleased. It is a stinging indictment from Joab. It is the highest of insubordinations. Not only did he disobey David's commandment not to kill him, he killed him and then comes and speaks this way to the king. What do you do with Joab? One writer said this. He's he's wrong and he's right. He's rebellious and he's reasonable. He lacks subordination but not since. The writer may sympathize with David's condition, but he agrees with Joab's mind. Hence, Joab's speech is nasty, but necessary. Mind you, of um, remember a few good men, Colonel Jessup, Jack Nicholson. I mean, you don't know what to think about that guy. I mean, you don't like him, but then there's that scene, you know, Demi Moore's there, or, or it's uh, um, Tom Cruise. I don't know which one of them. tell me the truth. Remember what he said? He says, you can't handle the truth. We live in a world that has walls and these walls are guarded by men with guns and I have greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. We use words like honor and code and loyalty. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to somebody who rises and sleeps under the very blanket of the freedom I provide. Remember that scene? It's the best scene in the whole movie. What do you do with Joab, David, your freedom's at our expense. You can sit here in your armchair and weep and grieve and second-guess us, but we had a decision to make. And then in verses 7 and 8, what he does is he says, David, you need to dry your eyes, you need to wash your face, and you need to go stand in front of your men and act like a king so david will but it's not how the ending should have been is it we'll talk a little more about it next week the bible does not hide the pain of david the bible it doesn't disclose the source of the pain except that david knew it was his his son died for his guilt in some ways his son died for his own guilt don't get me wrong But David knew his guilt was the catalyst for his son to die. And now his son is dead. And yet David will be treated as a man in the New Testament. Out of Jesus' words, of the writers of the New Testament, as a hero. One who, who, who is faithful. But certainly not without context. David is the anointed King, he is a suffering king. But I am here to tell you, the tears he sheds are his own grief, and the tears he sheds are over his own guilt. We need a greater David. We need a greater son of David. In Isaiah 53, we are told that the greater son of David, the man of sorrows, he will bear our griefs. He will carry our sorrows He will take upon himself our iniquity. See, here's the problem. The history of David's kingdom is this powerful display that there is a problem that David could never solve. Because the king himself was a sinner. His sons and his subjects were sinners. In particular, his son Absalom was a sinner, was a rebel. Justice demanded one thing. David's love for Absalom longed for something else. You know what's interesting? There's only a few times in the Bible where you have sort of this thing that happens in the language where, Oh, Absalom, my Absalom, or my God, my God, or... And every one of them are significant. David will weep and say, I wish I could have died in your place. The greater son of David will come and actually die in our place. And he will cry out, oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One writer says the story of the eternal son is that in some time he is going to be given up to the cross. He is going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a sense that he's lost his father and there is going to be an echoing cry in the heart of the heavenly father much deeper than David's cry at the death of his son. Oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom. I don't think David knew the significance of these words. However, when the greater son of David eventually came, some for many, as he says... What David could not do, our Heavenly Father did. What David's earthly son could not do, David's divine incarnate greater son did. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul says that is how God shows his love for us. He died for us. He was raised to new life so that we can live. As we come to this time of baptism, that's what we remember this morning. Was the sacrifice of a son who was not guilty but took our guilt Who did not die in rebellion of his father, but died to the glory of his father. Not to take the kingdom away from his father, but to hand the kingdom to his father. To make atonement for all. That's why Paul will say a few verses later than what we just read in Romans 6. Do you not know? Hey believer, don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live With him. That's what we remember at baptism this morning. Baptism doesn't save you. Let me tell you something. This box back here, you know, nothing special about this box. I mean, it's valuable. We're really glad to have it. There's nothing special about it, there's not even anything special about the water in it. It's not holy. You know what? It just came out of the water hose. Nothing's special about anybody that's going to be taking anybody under and pulling anybody up. None of that saves you. Those that are going to be baptized this morning have already been saved. This is their public confession of it. This is their, um, if you think about it, they're, they're acting out a reality that's already taken place. It represents, look, people are already coming down the aisles. As a joke. All right. That's why in baptism they'll go under the water as though dead and buried, come out of the water to new life. That's what we celebrate this morning. It is a celebration, it is not a somber service. And so, as these that have made their profession and have demonstrated in this act what they believe, we will celebrate with them. It's very appropriate to get loud and rowdy, it's just fine. So Jeff Bice is going to come up. He is going to uh, to introduce us to these folks. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will uh, we'll party here for a little bit. Father, we thank you for the morning we've had. We thank you for your word and that it does not return.